All right, that was weird, but we'll take it. Um, yeah, Dale and I go back to our Biola days. And so when I heard that Dale was coming here, coming back, uh, I thought, oh, this is good. Because uh, then Danny Bush went to Biola. So it's like a Biola takeover. So if you went to Westmont, we want you to hear the gospel clearly. Um, that's a little Biola joke right there. Um, no, it's, it's fun to be here, actually. And I, I um, uh, have a little bit of backdrop with, with, first of all, are there any Oakland A's fans here? Oh, there's one. Awesome. Oh, there's a couple over here. Okay, good. Um, you, probably all Giants people. I get it. I think the big thing today is really, are there any Raiders fans? Because today is due day right here. And I, I just, I, I usually say, and I talk about my, my affinity for the Raiders because I've grew up with the Raiders and, and the A's and they've just been my team. But I truly believe that if Jesus were walking on the earth today, he would be a Raider fan. <clears throat> and the Bible teaches it actually. Uh, people don't realize that it actually talks about how Jesus came to seek and save those who were lost. And if, you know, sinners, tax collectors, Raider Nation, it all kind of fits in the whole thing. And then when you, when you think about it, you're like, oh, that actually makes sense. You're right. You probably would have been a, you probably would have been a Raider fan. He healed them all, and then they become 49er fans or something like that. But um, uh, I also have a, <clears throat> a relationship with your previous pastor, um, Bob Thomas. And I, um, just, I, just, I was just thinking and reminded of this story when I was here. Uh, when I came this morning, I thought, oh, yeah. Bob Thomas. And Bob Thomas and I um, met in one of the weirdest contexts. You guys, you guys remember Bob Thomas, right? Okay, I'm not speaking out of like nobody knows who he is. Um, so my daughter started dating this boy named Drew. And so they were dating and Drew would come over to my house. I didn't know who he was, just some nice kid, just come over to the house. And, uh, and my daughter would go over to his house. Every once in a while they were dating for a while. And then um, I'm asked to guest lecture at a seminary course and be on a panel and guest lecture with someone named Bob Thomas. And uh, so I'd never met him. I'm like, okay, so we're talking, we're you know, meeting in front of the class. They pull us up, the class is all there. And um, I realize, and I walk up and he goes, your daughter's dating my son. This is in front of the class. This is in front of everybody. Your daughter's dating my son. And I'm like, oh, Drew's your, your, Drew's dad. Your son is dating my daughter. And we're, and we're having this dialogue right in front of everybody. Everyone's like, you know, they're like taking notes. Like, this has nothing to do with what we're talking about. And it was just this weird interaction. We became friends after that. And uh, I love, love Bob and just the, uh, the storied history of just our relationship and connection. So I just think that's a pretty cool thing. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about myself. I'm going to show you a picture of my family here on the screen. Um, this is all of us. We live out in Soquel, just about, just above the uh, Capitola, just looking down at the water. And we have a 14-acre property out there, and I've got four living areas, and my whole family, almost my whole family lives there, so a couple of them don't. But this is my family here. This is just last Christmas, and all of us together squeezed on the staircase. And I just, I just wanted to give you a little backdrop to who we are, and we, um, we love living here in the Bay Area. We moved here in 96. And uh, it's been a, a fantastic journey to be in the mix of what God is doing in the collective Bay Area. And I'll tell you a bit about my family. Um, one of my kids, and I'll just have that kid pop up here, our most recent. I, I have four of my own kids, and then I have seven grandkids. And this is our most recent grandkid. This is Judah. And Judah was born back in May. He is eight months old. And one of the things that I love, here's another picture of him. Uh, clearly what we do is we test their, you know, balance and, you know, throw babies in waters. That's what we do. Uh, my son, balancing my son, balancing my grandson. Uh, but he's the newest member. And I'm watching something that fascinates me every time about my kids and even my grandkids. And with this one here, I never get tired of it. It's the discovery of things. And he's going through all this stuff. And, and I've got five granddaughters and two grandsons. I have three daughters and one son. So I, have, I get the girl thing, and I understand how they operate. The son thing is a completely different thing because they are constantly grabbing everything. 
And he is at this stage where he's doing that very thing, grabbing this and grabbing that, pulling these different things out. And it, and it starts this way. It starts with his eyes because he sees it. He reaches for it and grabs it. And then, and then it's just, he feels it up, just feels it up, scratching it. And then it, next place it goes is into his mouth. And I have pulled so many things out of this kid's mouth. I just last night, put, pulling, we had a pine cone left over from Christmas, and he's got it in his mouth, little pine things in his mouth. Feeling everything, smelling what's familiar, the sound of his mother's voice as she comes home. We're watching the kids. She walks in. He can hear her, and he knows. Turns, looks, starts to cry. Watching his sister. And I'm, it's amazing to literally watch all of his senses come into play at the same time, especially his sense of touch, because he's constantly grabbing everything. And I'm amazed by it, actually, because I realized as I watched his bright face, he is taking in the world through his senses. It's all going into who he is. And, I'm, and, and, and everything that registers in this new brain of his as he begins to recognize, these are your grandparents, these are your great-grandparents, these are your cousins and your uncles. And he becomes familiar and his face beams. If you have kids, you know what I'm talking about. When they have the familiarity of what they see and what they hear, the familiarity of taste and smell and touch. And they all come into this unique play. And the senses, sight, touch, taste, sound, and smell plays such an integral part of our interaction into the world. Just coming to church this morning, as you walked in, you might have smelled coffee, you might have heard the music, you saw something that was familiar. You're sitting currently in a very comfortable chair, as opposed to other churches where the chairs aren't so comfortable. But you have that sense of, I feel different things, and our senses play into so much of what we do. Even so much on the subconscious level, because you're just not aware of it until something's actually gone. I remember a specific time for me when I noticed all five senses coming into play at one time. And it probably happens more often, but this one is noticeable to me. So I worked at a church for 10 years, not far from here, called Westgate Church. And I worked there from 2004 to 2014. And I was uh, one of the pastors. When I joined the church on staff, um, we didn't have our new buildings or anything. We just kind of had some janky old buildings. And the pastor, Steve Clifford, was welcoming me. And he said, this is your office. And it was the office in the gym farthest away from everybody. I didn't know if that was some sort of message, but that's where I sat. No air conditioning, no heating. And he called us the donkey church because we had nothing. And he says, this is your office. And I'm like, okay. And I remember it was so hot when I came on board that I would just open the window and just, you know, because I no air conditioning. And I was, again, the farthest, and, 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 and Westgate sits in this kind of triangulation between Prospect Lawrence and um, Saratoga, and it has this triangle right in the middle, and there's businesses around the triangle that surround the church that sits in the middle of it. And my office is in the out, farthest outskirts of that in one section over near a business park. And I noticed, because my window is open, a smell wafting through into my office. And what had happened right on the corner, right on the corner, they put in a brand new Krispy Kreme donuts. You guys are familiar with Krispy Kreme. And um, it's there. I've never had a Krispy Kreme in my life. I don't know anything about it. I was just like, okay, Krispy Kreme, whatever. But all day, and it was like torture. I mean, all day I have this wafting smell. Have you been into a Krispy Kreme? It like has a five-mile radius of odor that you're like, what do I smell? And it's the Krispy Kreme. It just like draws you in. And so I'm just smelling this all day. And I'm like, man, this just is crazy. So one day, because it's brand new opening, I decided I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go over there. And, and, you know, this is what they do all day. If you can see, this, this is what they make donuts all day. So I go over there. And they're pumping, the smell is going throughout, going through my window. And this is what I see. Let me just give you a, I, I see a piece of artwork. This, this, what they call the warm glaze waterfall. Have you, have you seen this? This is what this looks like. And I, I'm fascinated. So my smell draws me in. I'm looking at everything. I'm seeing all this stuff. And then I hear the sound that was the most 
wonderful sound I could hear, which is the lady saying, would you like to sample a free donut? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm afraid I would. And so she offers me a donut, and she says, would you like the chocolate or the glaze? And I couldn't make a decision, and so she made the decision for me. Would you like both? I think I would. And so I'm having these donuts, and I picked up the donut. It was so light and airy. Have you had a Krispy Kreme donut before? Do you know what I'm talking about? It's so light. It's so airy. It's so, like, just delicate. It's tender. It's like a baby's face. And then I bite into the donut. I've never had a donut like that. I've had donuts all over. I've had donuts in different parts of, you know, uh, of the Bay Area, different donut stores. I've never had one like this, where angels are singing, the heavens was opening up, and the glory of God shone around. And I had this experience that was like crazy. And then she says to me, would you like to buy some donuts? I've already eaten two. Would you like to buy some donuts? I'm like, well, I've already eaten two. And she says, well, we have a special. If you buy two, you get three free. I'm like, that makes no sense. I said, well, maybe. She said, but if you buy six, we do a half off on a dozen. I'm like, oh my gosh, this just keeps going. <laughs> so I'm thinking, all right, I'll bring some back to the office. And so she gives me a box. Here's a box of donuts. This is what it looks like here. She hands me a box of donuts, and I bring the donuts back to my office. And I, I, I write an email to everybody to come um, to my office. Uh, I, I forgot to send. People accused me that I intentionally forgot to send. And I sat there and I ate all the donuts in that whole box. Like I just sat there and ate every donut. Like throughout the day, I was just like, I could just have, I could just have one more. Just one more. This, I didn't have lunch, so this is probably, this two would be good. And I ate the whole box of donuts. And I, I discovered this whole thing where I'm just like, uh, I, I'm, I'm drawn to this. And all the senses came into play to weave me into this whole narrative. And I realized as I was eating donuts too, that I come to a conclusion that there's really no calories because supermodels eat them all the time. I saw this picture right here of uh, Giselle. So I figured if she can eat a donut and it doesn't affect her, it probably doesn't affect me either. So we're good. You're good to eat those donuts. But if you think for a moment, if my senses weren't into play at all, it's just another building. They're selling something that I don't care about. Nobody cares. When you factor in the senses, it's a game changer. It invokes so much of who you are. And that's what I want to look at today. The senses animate the world. And the body, our physical presence, has this physiological sensory hub that serves as the gateway to allow the outside world into our inmost being, our soul, that, that, that's constituted our mind, our will, and our emotions. The, the senses bring that in. Nothing else brings it in. And Jesus even refers to this idea of the senses where he uses eyesight as an entry point for the inner person, the whole self. In his Sermon on the Mount, he says this. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. And if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Your whole body will have something different as it comes in through this sense. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. This is the gateway. And to experience and to have the animation of the world, our senses take us in there. And I'm watching my grandson, and I'm realizing this is his entry point into what's happening in the world. I believe so much of our connection to faith, our worshiping God, is wrapped up in the senses. We just, haven't, we just haven't thought of it because it's just constantly going. It's always on. And there's this beautiful passage in Psalms that I'll say all the time where it says, taste and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. It gives you that, that, that taste this. Now, I live, I live, I have 14 acres, I've got orchards and vineyards, I've got fruit, all kinds of stuff. Here's a picture of my granddaughter and some of the stuff that we harvest every year. I always have the grandkids come and help harvest all the different things that we have. And I always say that, we always open things up, I always say to them, taste and see. We grow blackberries and lullaberries and blueberries and so much fruit. <laughs> my daughter, my granddaughter, Azariah, she's like, the Lord is sour. I've tasted it and it's sour. <laughs> I said, well, that one probably needs to stay on the vine a little bit longer. But we're constantly doing that, and I have that conversation. But in this Psalms um, is what I believe the Bible is saying, taste and see. The Hebrew word plays out into a figurative context to perceive, 
to experience through the senses that God is good. That's really the figurative context of that passage in the Hebrew translation of that word. To where, yeah, literally, can you taste and see? Absolutely. But figuratively, as it comes in through that portal, that hub of a sensory perception, are we experiencing the goodness of God? See, so much of our faith journey dismisses or ignores the role that the senses play in the process. And often, it's often as it relates to worshiping God. And a large part of our Western church has systematically reduced worship to singing songs on Sunday morning. And for me, I love worship. I, that's, one, that's my favorite part of, the, of, of coming on Sunday morning is worshiping together. And while it's something I deeply love, it barely scratches the surface of experiencing the goodness of God given our full physiological capacity that our senses afford us. This is just a piece of it. And so what the churches often do, well, we'll add a fog machine and we'll add all these other things to draw on the senses. And I'm like, no, the world is so full of the things that express the goodness of God that come through our senses, we need to experience it. To taste and see, to perceive, to experience, to take into our inward being all that God has. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to look closer at some of these senses as they connect to following Jesus, as they connect to our response as Christ followers and our worship of him. And so we're going to call it True North. And True North is the big idea behind this was that for so much of the past two years, as we were just sharing, our senses have been blocked, they've been covered, they've been ignored, they've been banned, they've been quarantined. And that our God-given ability to experience him in this world has actually changed. And that's the thing that drew, that drew me to this message idea. For me, I came across it because mostly because I've never seen such a disruption in our world as much as COVID has over the last two years. And while there's so much massive damage and disruption that's happened to the outside world and businesses and families and everything else, that I strongly believe that our inner world, our personal well-being, our souls have suffered deeply. This idea of reacquainting ourselves to God-given senses draws us intuitively to a true north. And at the start of this new year, I felt like it's a great opportunity for us to reconnect to your God-given design through the senses. So this morning, I'm going to dive into the first one, which is about touch uh, of, the, of the senses and, and really trying to unpack that a little bit. So as you're sitting in your chair, you feel things. You feel the temperature of the room. I was here early, and I, I, I drove here. I had a seat warmer, and my hands were freezing. And so I walked in, warm here, cold here. And I just, and I was like conscientiously aware of it when I walked in. Then I got in here, we had conversations. I had to go up to the room up there. I walked up those stairs, temperature changed right up here at the top. It's really nice. If you're cold, you just sit at the top of the stairs. But your body begins to feel these particular things. And as you're sitting in the chair, as you're feeling your feet, it plays into this ever-present thing. And for me, and I don't know if this has played out for any of you, but I never knew what Zoom was two years ago. Now it's a common part of, you know, I'm Zoomed out because I'm constantly on a Zoom call, constantly. And as I'm on these Zoom calls, I find myself where I need to give a genuine high five to somebody. I need to meet with somebody. I need to shake their hands. I need to hug somebody. And I can't. I'm on a video call with my team the other day. And we were celebrating a huge achievement, huge. And all I could do was give a video high five and an emoji that felt super hollow. And then um, uh, I just need some sort of genuine touch. A reduced, uh, or actually when we're in person, it's reduced to a fist bump or an elbow bump. And I get it. I get what's going on. But I, I, I sometimes, do, don't you feel like, gosh, I just need to hug somebody. I don't even care if I like them or know them. I just need to hug somebody. Is that weird? Maybe. See, here's some interesting facts about touch. First is this. Touch is always on. 
The sense of touch is always on. You can close your eyes and imagine what it would be like not to see. You can plug your ears and imagine what it's like not to hear. You can have a stuffy nose and have no sense of smell. But touch is central and ever-present to our lives. It's always on. Second, touch shapes our first impressions. You know, when you shake somebody's hand, And your brain automatically, whether you know this or not, your brain automatically discerns friend or foe. It's just that fight or flight exercise that just goes on in the brain when you shake somebody's hand. Or, you know, when you give somebody a hug and they feel so stiff and you just, how how are they? They they kind of felt a little stiff. They didn't respond back to you. I've shaked, I have had a, a moment to shake someone's hand. And you know when you shake somebody's hand and they just kind of give you this kind of like, you're like, that was like a noodle. You just, you just handed me a noodle. Like a, your fingers are like spaghetti. And you're like, and, and what, what does it do? It just shapes my impression of who you are based on touch. My dad always said, shake it tight and look in their eyes. So I always do that and be like, okay, ow, that hurts. But shape, touch shapes the first impressions that we have of others. Touch is also multifunctional. So there's two kinds of touch. There's what they call discriminative touch and emotional touch. And discriminative is one that just gives the facts, location, movement, strength, um, presence, something's here. Where emotional touch is controlled by what they call a special sensor called the C-tactyl fibers. And it conveys information in a much slow manner. And, in ter- and it's vague in terms of where touching is happening. But it sends information to a part of the brain called the posterior insula. And that's crucial for what they call social bonding. That includes things like a hug from a friend. A touch from a mother to a child. An intimate touch. Those kinds of touches are completely different. But it's multifunctional. It's Um, different styles and kinds of touch. Touch also serves as a protection mechanism. When something's hot, something's cold, something's sharp, something's dull, it's dangerous or it's painful. If you don't have pain, you don't know. For for Christmas, my wife got this thing. I think it's called La La Crusade or Crusade or something like that. It's a Dutch oven. Weighs like a Mack truck. Anybody have one of those things? You know what I'm talking about? They're like I pulled it out. I'm like, holy smokes, is there food already in this thing? It's, it's just like super heavy. And it's this cast iron thing that you, that you cook stuff in. Well, it becomes like a cauldron. And when we pull it out, it's probably the most dangerous thing that we have in the house. It's like moving nuclear waste. I mean, it's just like you don't get near it. And you can get near it. And you can you like family gathered around the Dutch oven to warm up. You don't touch it, but you know your sense gives this sense of protect yourself, children, and your house, and your neighborhood from this Dutch oven. I remember the first time when my, I learned electricity. My dad left to go get a tool, and he said, don't touch those wires. Well, of course. You know, I mean, he could have said, don't put Cheerios up your nose, and I would have been like, where are the Cheerios? I don't even know why he would say that. But he's, don't touch the wire. So, of course, I'm like, oh, I, I'm just going to move them to the side so I don't touch them. And I touched the wires. And I literally had electricity go through my whole body to where now I am deathly afraid of doing anything electrical. Deathly afraid. Because that was horrible. But pain, touch, serves as a protection mechanism. It keeps us from harming ourselves and allows us to know these things. And then the other one, another one for me, and this is exhaustive, it's just some that I'm just processing through. Touch and emotion are fickle partners. Touch and emotion are fickle partners. Because here, let me just describe this. I can be on a date with my wife, have my arm around her, just kind of caressing and rubbing her shoulder. It's nice, it's sweet. Now, I can put myself in the exact same context, except we're in a fight. I have my arm around her. I'm giving her the same massage, the same caress. And then it's more like, don't touch me. You know, that whole kind of response. 
And it's a fickle thing to where it's connected to the emotional connection of the individual. Touch and emotion are fickle partners. Touch is so intertwined to the inner life. Our relationships and our ability to function in this world that when we lose our sense of touch, it erodes our capacity to function as God intended. And I would even go so far to say, at least for me, that messing with your senses actually rattles your walk with God. His love for me hasn't changed, but it's this sensory block into my inner life that's gotten all jacked up because of COVID. It's like having a stuffy nose or a wheezy cough. I can still breathe, but I just can't take a deep breath. You feel that ever? And that's what blocking the senses or these past two years have done for us. I can't tell you how many days I've sat in my home office, my kitchen, and sat and had a, COVID, had a, had a uh, Zoom meeting, a conversation with somebody, standing alone, and then having this great, awesome opportunity, even preaching and teaching and doing different things like this, but doing it online, and then hitting the end button, and then I'm home alone. Do you ever feel that? Like, I just want to go to the water cooler and talk to somebody. I want to have the meeting after the meeting. What did you think? That was great. I want, to, I want to high five someone. But you feel this pain point. And I want to show you something in the Gospels that feels unique to Jesus' ministry on earth. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 1. And we'll start in the book of Mark. And I want you to show what I think is this highly tactical touch-oriented, literally hands-on ministry of Jesus. So we'll journey through just some of the opening chapters of Mark. So Mark chapter 1. And Mark, Mark's a real action-packed gospel. And when you see it, it just starts, it, like it just jumps in immediately. In Mark chapter 1, he starts doing healing and he's driving out uh, evil spirits, all these different things. In Mark chapter uh, in the latter part of the, the first chapter, Peter's mother-in-law gets sick. And so Jesus comes to respond to her. And it says, so he went to her, took her hand, helped her up, and the fever left her, and she began to wait on him. Just starting with that. Then we move down the, down the chapter just a little bit further. In verse forty. And 41 and 42, Jesus heals a man with leprosy. Verse, a man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and he touched him. And he said, be clean. And immediately leprosy left him and he was cleansed. I mean, that, that to me alone is like he breaks um, quarantine protocol right there. And Jesus reaches out and says, I'm willing to do this. And he uses tactically, just as, you know, get the hand sanitizer and do his thing. He just goes. Look at chapter 3. Even before we get to chapter 3, just throughout the chapter, he, Jesus has, goes to a party with, at Matthew's house. He's hanging out and having dinner, and he's interacting with people. He heals on the Sabbath. And it says in chapter 3, verse um, 10 where the crowds start to follow him and they're pressing and they're going around him. And it says in verse 10, for he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Everybody wants a piece of Jesus. He's interacting and it's a very tactical approach to healing and ministry, healing, touching, responding. We're only in chapter three and you see this very, very tactical Jesus. Chapter 4, he gives a couple messages. And then in chapter 5, there's a really unique story. Um, starting in verse 22, there's a man there. His name is Jairus. He's a, one of the synagogue leaders. It says in verse 22. And there's, this is a story, and there's a story inside the story. So verse 22, it says that one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. And he pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying, this 12-year-old daughter. Please come and put your hands on her so she will be healed and live. And so Jesus went with him. And so he's heading off to go heal tactically as he has throughout this whole thing. And everybody's following, just trying to get a piece of Jesus. And then the story within the story is a woman who had been suffering from bleeding for so long as the crowds are pressing around Jesus... 
she thinks, if I could just get close to him and touch, even if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. In verse 27 and verse 28, it says, uh, when she heard about Jesus, she came up from behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. And because she thought, if I could just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. And immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body she was freed from the suffering. And I love this because Jesus asked the question at once. Jesus says, who touched my clothes? And uh, the disciples, this is, I love this in verse 31. I find humor in the Bible all the time where you see the, uh, the disciples. You see the people crowded against you. The disciples asking, and yet you ask who touched your clothes? And it's, that's one of those, the disciples going to Jesus, are you kidding? That's right there. That, I mean, that, literally you can put that right there. They're like, you're kidding, right? But Jesus felt the power go out of him because of touch and had an impact. And she's healed. And he heals her and he speaks to her in very endearing terms with familiar terms of daughter, you're healed. And then it gets back to the original story with Jairus' daughter who had passed away in their journey to get there, probably held up because of this woman being healed and Jesus being blocked by the crowds. And it gets up to chapter uh, at the end, 41, 42, and it says uh, they, put, they put him out. He took the child's father and mother, disciples who were with him, and went in there to the child. For, verse 41, he took her by the hand and he said, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say get up. And immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old and they were completely astonished. Do you think? All touch. So you look at Jesus' ministry. We're barely into the story. We're barely into the gospel of Mark. And Jesus is touching everybody and everything. He's like a kid in a toy store. He's just all over the map, just doing these things. And people responding, pressing into him because of the sense of touch. Now, granted, he's Jesus, but he brings something tactical to the conversation. Touch is issued in a powerful way, and it's central to the story. And it's weird how Jesus' ministry starts like this with so much tactical response and ends the same way. You see at the end... In Luke chapter 24, which just jump over there, Luke chapter 24, after the resurrection, he appears to the disciples, and they're like, whoa, is this a ghost? What's, what's going on? In verse 39 and verse 40, he says this. He says, why are you troubled? Why do you look at me with doubts raised in your mind? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. It's, it, it is I myself. Touch me and see. And then even with Thomas later on, as we know him as Doubting Thomas in verse 27, chapter 20 of uh, John, the Gospel of John. Th Thomas is questioning everything. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. Like literally, there's holes. Put your fingers here. And he says, your hand, put it in the side where they stabbed me. Stop doubting and believe. And Jesus' ministry is bookended with touch on the front end and back end. Because it plays a crucial piece to everything that he does. And as we work to model our lives after Christ, we have to look at this and say, how important is touch in the context of what we do in worship, in life in Christ, in fulfilling our, our calling? It's crazy. Even the, this same apostle, the apostle John, gives an explanation of who Jesus is and his work on the earth. And he framed it through the senses with an emphasis on touch. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, and I love how the Amplified Bible translates it. I'll just read it. I'll have it on the screen here. From the very first day, we were there, taking it all in. We heard it with our own ears. We saw it with our own eyes. And we verified it with our own hands. The word of life appeared right before our eyes. We saw it happen. And now we're telling you in the most sober prose that we witnessed, what we witnessed was incredibly this. The infinite life of God himself took shape before us. We saw it, we heard it, and now we're telling you so you can experience it along with us. This experience of communion with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Our motive for writing you is simply this. We want you to enjoy this too. Your joy will double our joy. God, it just sounds so awesome. But it's all the senses. He says, we saw it, we heard it, we felt it. We were there. The person and work of Jesus was so tactical. And you know throughout the rest of the Gospels, as we just scratched the surface, he embraced kids. He went to dinner parties. He blessed people and so much more. He didn't walk in like this. 
his hands in his You know he was walking and touching people. That's just what he did. He broke social distancing barriers. He violated leprosy quarantine protocols. Touch brought about healing. It brought about reassurance. It brought about hope. It brought about verification. Touch was the crucial part of the journey. So if touch was so vital to the ministry of Jesus and those around him, I want to work to reclaim and reimagine how touch plays into experiencing God today. And here's what I'm afraid of. Because touch is so vital and we've disconnected it for so long, it's dulled our sensitivities towards the things of God. And it's reduced our kingdom impact. And it's sucked any joy from, uh, that comes from his goodness. And it has diminished our vibrancy in worship. Largely in part because we've been covered. All the things that take away from our capacity to know God. It's ironic that in the Bible, throughout the whole Bible, that any internal breakdown of relationship with God is likened to the impact of touch and the lack thereof. Any breakdown of relationship with God speaks about numbness, being callous, being seared, or having a hardened heart, or desensitized. It all has to do with touch. All these things that take away from our capacity of knowing and loving God. So my goal today was to reawaken our sense of who God is, what he's called us to be, and reacquaint ourselves with the things of God through touch. So as touch is so vital to the work of Jesus, it should be vital in our lives. So here's five things I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have you do. So if you got your notes, I want you to write these things down because this is your homework for this week. First is this. They all start with re. First one is reinstate your hands to the Lord. Reinstate your hands to the Lord. It says this, and as Paul is coaching young Timothy, for this reason I remind you, to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So reinstate your hands to the Lord. That you're going to involve the touch more and be conscientiously aware of it throughout your day and throughout the response of what you do in and around people with the touch. And here's a blessing that I, I kind of co-wrote with um, an ancient author. I've messed it up a little bit just to give it more cultural context. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you just put out your hands and I'm going to pray a, a, a blessing, a blessing of reinstatement of your hands to the Lord. If you're in the video site, I'm going to ask you to put, if you're watching at home, just put out your hands. And this is what it is. And just receive this. Blessed be the work of our hands, O God. Blessed be these hands that have touched life. Blessed be these hands that have nurtured creativity. Blessed be these hands that have held pain. Blessed be these hands that embraced with passion. Blessed be these hands that have tended gardens and planted new seeds. Blessed be these hands that have cleaned and washed and mopped and scrubbed. Blessed be these hands that are weathered and scarred. Blessed are these hands that have reached out to those in need. Blessed are these hands that have brought comfort, hope, and healing. Blessed be these hands that hold the promise of the future. Blessed be the work of our hands, O God, and use them in a way that blesses others and brings you glory. Amen. We just consecrated these guys. Consecrated your hands for your week to be a blessing to other people and to use them in, and use that tactical approach like Jesus, like Jesus would. That's the first thing, is to reinstate your hands to the Lord. Second one is this, is to re-engage your work as worship. To re-engage your work as worship. I love this passage in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. It says, whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart as work as if working for the Lord. 
Psalm 90, verse 70, it says, May the favor of the Lord rest on us. Establish the work of your hands for us. Yes, establish the work of your hands, Psalm 90. Physical touch to enact worship. Like, like when, when I am at work and I'm, and I'm on the keyboard, if I'm, if I'm in the garden, and whatever I'm doing, that this work is an act of worship for you. My wife is a phenomenal cook. And I, I, I didn't know that before I married her. Bonus. It's just a great thing. And her artistry is an act of worship. And we've been having conversations about that because there's some days she like, uh, sometimes it's just monotonous and I don't feel like it, but that's part of the deal. I remember on our, prop, on our property, um, we put in uh, a vineyard and I decided to make that a worship moment for me. Here's a picture of me at the, at the vineyard doing some of the stuff. So it was me and my dad. And, and I actually prayed over every vine that went in the ground and I kissed it and I hugged it and I quoted, quoted scripture over it and put it in the ground. I'm like, people are like, you're nuts. I'm like, maybe, maybe, but I want to establish this and I'm quoting scripture. I'm the vine, you're the branches. You're the light of the world. I'm speaking like life into what I believed is like, I'm speaking life into this. And this is speaking life into me as each time I go and I'm pruning, I'm having a spiritual exercise and I'm recognizing God has continued to work through me even through the work of my hands. Make your work, re-engage your work as worship before the Lord. Here's the next thing. Is to reassociate with God's creation. Reassociate with God's creation. See the beauty and the creativity, the design, and thus the designer. So I live, I live in the mountains. I love just looking and seeing the trees. We have redwood trees and chestnut trees, and we have oak and fir and all kinds of things. And I love just going and walking the grounds and seeing the goodness in nature. And then we go down to the ocean, we go down to Capitola and to Aptos, and we just walk and see the waves and just see all these things. And I remember standing out front of my house and just going, this is a wow moment, worthy of worship. And I'm reassociating with myself with God's created order because through that it says um, in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Colossians 1, verse 16 and 17 says, For in him all things were created, things in the heaven, things on the earth, visible things, invisible things, with the thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things and in all things, he holds them together. I'm like, oh man. Like that has reconnected me, taking walks with no agenda, but just to look and see. And to reconnect with the nature that God has created in such a way for me to experience the divine. Connect, sorry, reassociate with God's creation. The next one is reconnect your physical presence to others. Reconnect your physical presence to others. It was, it was just this last week. I was supposed to have a meeting, a Zoom meeting with a school board member out in Campbell Union. And, and I, we're going to, we'll just grab, jump on Zoom. And I thought, why, why am I doing that? I can meet him at his office. And I go to his office. I, the door's locked. I knock on the door. He's the only one there. And we sat down and we just shared a, a, a moment. Just because it was one human contact, social distance enough, but just to be present in that place. And I had to choose it because I'd become so familiar and so used to doing the lazy way. I'll just stay home. We'll just jump on Zoom. No big deal. Well, before Zoom existed, we didn't do that. Especially if it was a crucial meeting, a crucial conversation. Now it's just become so familiar. And it says in Hebrews chapter 10, it says, Do not forsake the gathering together as some are in the habit of doing. Forsaking it. Don't leave it. Don't. If you can do it, do it by encouraging one another. So here's my challenge with this, to reconnect your physical presence to others. When you can, be physically together. When you can, tactically embrace. When you can, break bread at the same table. When you can, stay longer. Just trust me. It is a huge piece of what God's design is for us as in our human condition is to be connected to other people. When you can, 
I'm not saying do this. I'm saying when you feel you can, stay longer. Reconnect your physical presence. Next, last one, is to realign your calling as Christ's ambassador. Realign your calling as Christ's ambassador. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us this, is we're Christ's ambassadors. We can't get away from that. He's actually placed that mantle upon us. We are Christ's ambassadors. So in the circles and the interactions that you have, you are Christ's ambassador. You are speaking. It says you're Christ's ambassadors as if you were uh, speaking on God's behalf to be reconciled with him. So to use emotional touch, healing touch to those in need, to use touch as, a, as, an, as an ambassador would to bring assurance. I, 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 my wife and I flew on a plane recently and we had a little turbulence. And as we had a little turbulence, I'm so used to it, I sleep through it, but she, doesn't, she just drives her nuts. She just gets nervous and it was a little bumpier than what we were used to. And what does she do? She reaches out her hand to me and I take her hand and I hold her hand. Now when you think about it, in theory, what does she want? Well, she did, first and foremost, she don't want the plane to crash. That's the first thing, right? So she reaches out to me for assurance. I don't have a lot of assurance. Like, I, mean, I don't know how to fly a plane. So I mean, like, if, if we're going down, I, you know, yeah, I'll hold your hand as we go. Like, I don't have much to give. But I realize what she doesn't need is me to fly the plane. She needs to know that she's not alone. And when you think about it, our role as Christ ambassadors is to show people in a reassuring way to say, you're not alone either. I'm with you. You got this. We'll be together. We're Christ ambassadors. When you do that, grace is passed on. Belonging, hope, forgiveness, strength, comfort. To realign your calling as Christ's ambassador. I'll just close with this story. Um, and it has to do with being Christ's ambassador and a significant touch in my life. It was 1996 when I moved here from Southern California. Brought my family up here. I took a pastoral role at a church down the road called South Hills Church. And I was there for eight years. But when I started there, I pulled my kids, my young children out of school. We lived out on an acre near, with no neighbors. We didn't know anybody. My kids were angry at me because I took them out of school. My wife didn't know anybody. We were very lonely. And I remember during that season questioning, what was I thinking? What am I doing? Why am I here? And I actually considered when I moved here in 96 to move away, to go back home. And it was, I, I didn't bring it to my family. I was just pondering in my mind, like, did I make the biggest mistake of my life? Moving to the Bay Area. I love Southern California. I love where I'm from. And so one morning, I was just kind of in a funk this whole season early on. One morning, someone asked me to go pick them up at the airport. So I'm driving. You know, if, you know where, if you're familiar with that area from South Hills, I'm driving down Camden to get on Almaden Expressway. So there's like a, like a lane to get on Almaden Expressway. And I'm going to go to the airport to pick up a friend. And I'm going to get on Almond Expressway, and just like in, you know, getting on any, what I would think is an expressway or freeway, you, you speed up and merge to get on. Like, that's what you're supposed to do, merge. Speed up and merge. At least in Southern California, that's what we do. So I'm speeding up, and, you know, when you're going to merge, you're looking for your spot. So I'm speeding up and gaining momentum, and I turn and I look, and there's a car stopped in the entry lane with his dinker on so he can merge. And I'm going too fast, and I screech my brakes, and I rear-end him. Now, here I am sitting in my car, and I've just rear-ended a guy. I don't want to be here. I'm discouraged. I, I'm hating my life. I'm hate, my kids are frustrated. My wife is frustrated. We're, like, completely lost. And I put my head down on the steering wheel, like, oh, my gosh, what is going on? Now I've just rear-ended a guy. So I lift my head up, and he's already walked out of his car, and he's walked over towards me, and I thought he was going to punch me. And I open my door, and I look at him, and he says, you're having a bad day, aren't you? Yes, I am. And uh, we looked at our car, and we walked over to the front of the car and back of my, his car. He said, you know, I think my car's going to be okay. And your car probably need, needs a little work, but I think we're okay. But I mean, I nailed this guy. And he looks at me, and he walks over to me, and he hugs me. 
out of the blue, like, when was the last time you rear-ended somebody and then they come and hug you? I mean, it's not a common thing, right? So he just hugs me and he says, everything's going to be okay. Just keep looking up. He gets his car to drive off. And it was that moment that confirmed to me I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. I need to stay right where I am. I need this confirmation. I need some sort of very specific realignment that God has called me to be an ambassador for the Bay Area and to be present here. And since that time till now, that's been my role. And all I needed was somebody just to give me some sort of physical touch. Now, you might be thinking it, and it's probably, I thought in my mind, probably an angel. I have no idea. I mean, how often do you rear on somebody and they hug you? It's not common. But that type of thing where I needed a reconfirmation, I needed somebody to realign my purposes and calling in my own life. And that's what I needed. And that's what I believe our ambassador role is for the kingdom of God. It pulls us into a lifestyle of worship, of purpose, of honoring, of ministry, of kingdom building, and impacting this world for Jesus. So that's our opportunity to reequate. Uh, our connection of faith. So remembering those points one more time, and I'll just go over them. Reinstate your hands to the Lord. Reengage your work as worship. Reassociate with God's creation. Reconnect your physical presence to others and realign your calling as Christ's ambassador. So we guys stand with me and we'll just close in a time of prayer and some worship together. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to be with a church like this that values fighting through, getting back to the gathering of your people together. And as we work through that and people become more comfortable with what they can and can't do, that you would continue to draw this church into a new place with Dale coming and new leadership and different things going on, that you would revitalize what's happening here. And for each of us in our personal sphere of influence and our relationships, that we would be the presence, the hands and the feet the physical touch of Jesus and that coming out of COVID or wherever we are with COVID, that we would reacquaint ourselves with the power of the sense of touch to be a blessing to others. We thank you for our time. We thank you for um, uh, teaching us and giving us your scriptures. And most importantly, we thank you for Jesus. In Christ's name we pray.